Anything that we should avoid, topic-wise. Um, Matthew McConaughey. Okay. Okay. I, I I get sucked in. It's like, I mean, every, like you guys feel it too, don't you? Oh, like, yeah. Everybody feels it. Yeah. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> and now we've got our opener. Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Zupa. First off, thanks for listening. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Stand Up Pedal Action on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to help us out, please tell your friends about the show. Now, on today's episode, we talk with Mike Derner about his work with the U.S. Paralympic cycling team, getting chased by ostriches, and when to wear board shorts to a bike race. So, welcome. Welcome, everybody, to Supa. Uh, today in our studio, we have oh, a, a local local legend of sorts here, Mr. Mike Derner, who is a husband, father, coach, rider himself, done some racing, great encourager, also uh, an army veteran who served in Iraq. Thanks for being with us here today. And uh, I heard that, uh, that you have some great jokes. Not to put you on the spot, <laughs> but we're just going to start the show right off the top right, with that. Right, All just right. throw it, throw it down. Wow! If, um, uh, did you did you talk to my son? <laughs> my jokes. <laughs> um, I don't know if they're great, but they're. I mean, I like to come with jokes. Like, um, I was listening to your episode with Daniel Matheny, and he said he likes to talk during races. I like to tell jokes, like at the start line when everybody's like super nervous and like freaking out and. And then the first five minutes, I'm usually telling jokes too, and everybody's like bleeding out their eyeballs. That's my way of dealing with the stress of it. So, mm, I bet that's a mental game too. Uh, Get in their heads. Yeah, a little so, bit. So what do you got for us? I'm unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got uh, one for you. Okay. What do you call a group of killer whales playing instruments? I don't know. An orchestra. Oh man, that's gonna. <laughs> All right, I, this is one of my son's favorite jokes knock knock who's there cash cash who no thanks i like almonds <laughs> <laughs> very good oh thank you thank you for sharing you're welcome i'm sure there's more in there from both of you that you're just dying to tell at this moment oh well i mean you know like mine are now dad jokes like they used to be oh, like well i mean those are the best yeah those are the best. do you know how many Tickles it takes to make an octopus laugh? No. Ten. Ten. Ten tickles. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's an astronaut's favorite key on the keyboard? I, I don't know. In the space bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh what's the, right. uh, okay, I, the only one I've got to, com to add to this, what's the difference between a zippo and a hippo? I don't know. Well, one's a giant African land animal, and the other one's just a little lighter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, we're done, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we, we've seen just a bit of your background. Um, I'd love to hear you know, how you got to where you are now and what your journey was towards the coaching and cycling realm. Like, what, What's some of your, your background? All right. Um, well, I, so as a kid, like most kids in the U.S., played some team sports. Um, 
Well, yeah. First of all, where are you from originally? Oh, uh, so kind of all over. My dad worked for the Forest Service, um, which mm-hmm. some of your listeners might know if they live here in town. We have a big Forest Service presence, but some might not. So I had, so I grew up near the woods my whole life, um, but in small towns, Minnesota. Um, I was born in Missouri. Oh, okay. Weird. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we moved to Pennsylvania when I was about eight and a half or so. So I, I um, lived there for about 10 years until I graduated high school and then I was out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you didn't want to stick around for the meth and... Uh... Um, no, no. I, okay. I, I tried, I got out before the meth scene hit. Uh, interestingly enough, back to your joke, mm-hmm. the town where I went to, I lived is where they make Zippos. Real, really? Um, yes. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I told you we did our research, but... But you didn't realize no, that no, you put it know. into your joke. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I started as like a youth hockey player because um, mm-hmm. uh, I lived in Minnesota. And because like, what else there, is there to there's do? There's nothing else to do. Yeah. Like, I actually didn't know what a basketball was till I was like nine years old. Seriously? Seriously. Like, I never seen one. Because it was just, it was hockey or nothing. Right. Yeah. That was it. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, then we moved to Pennsylvania I learned what a basketball was. I mm-hmm. still can't do anything with one to yeah, save I my can't life. Either. Um, and, uh, played hockey there for a little bit. And then when I was about 14, uh, or 13, I, I had gotten a mountain bike for Christmas and I was like, there's a mountain bike race in the next town over. Let's go. Yeah. Okay, and so this sounds like a lot of the other first stories that we hear, which isn't, like most of the people we've had on the show, when we talk about their entry into cycling, it is often not, oh, I just started riding around town or I always rode to my friend's house. It's always something like this, like they just randomly get a bike and then the first thing is race it. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I lived in a small town. So yeah. as a kid, there was a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. So we rode to each other's houses. We sure. like there was dirt jumps that were not manicured, like our dirt jumps down in Goose Gossage or something. Like there was kids breaking their arms and stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're talking like construction piles. Yeah, like, and like just random hills that somebody had like like ridden enough to like put a groove in and, yeah. <laughs> and scrape away the grass. And uh, um, and and also I rode my bike to school most of the time too. Yeah, um, so. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot of random pedaling okay, before yeah. bike racing, but, but then, then it was like, once I got the mountain bike, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, oh yeah. Like bang, the lights were on and like, let's go. And do um, you remember what that bike was? It was a diamond back. Nice. It was red. I think it was an ascent, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. All right. Um, so yeah. Um. So there's a race in the next town over right. and you're going to make it happen. Yes. And what happened? Um, it was, I remember it was like rainy, cool. This is the East coast. Yeah. So, um, pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, show up and I'm wearing like a cotton t-shirt and some, some cycling shorts I'd gotten somewhere. Uh, and yeah, I had a blast like out there just like clawing up these oil and gas roads and some, there was some single track 
uh, there was some less than single track. Yeah. I just remember like getting whapped from like overgrowth from both sides. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm not the first one through here. How is this still standing? Um, and then th I crashed. Like bad? Uh, not bad. Like I was able to finish, but like, yeah, but like, yeah, I crashed and I like tore up my knee. There was a, it was, you know, dirt road. There was a crown on it and I hooked the, hooked the corner knob on the, the side knob on the, the crown of the road. Oh, geez. Um, and like jackknifed the front end and went flying off. Um, and I remember, um, there was, it was like 200 meters from the pavement and there was like some, an ambulance with a couple of paramedics in there and they just, they just stood there. They didn't come right <laughs> over. Um, <clears throat> but I got up and finished and I, I got third in the under 18. I was like, oh, cool. This yeah. is cool. All right. Yeah. And so from that moment, did you, were you just sold like, okay, it's going to be bikes? Pretty much. Yeah. Like I'll say in the town I lived in, there was me and another dude. We were about the same age, but he was the year ahead of me in school. Mm. And we were the only people that rode. Like there was a couple adults, but, but yeah. they weren't interested in like mentoring us in any way or like providing us with any like wisdom <laughs> and there was no bike shop in town either. Sure. So, so we were just kind of like on our own, like buying mountain bike action magazine yeah. and, <laughs> um, and trying to figure it out. And so, um, I'm going to give a shout out to Pete. Pete Zirklis now owns the bike shop in that town. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in like Western Pennsylvania, stop by Bradford, check out, you guys are going to love the name of his shop, just riding along. <laughs> the name of the shop. that's where to go if you find yourself in need of a part in yes. pennsylvania yeah all right yeah next time i'm there uh-huh so um so yeah so pete and i just kind of like figured things out and like conned our parents and driving us you know 45 minutes to an hour to the nearest bike shop for stuff and um you know like having horrible mechanical experiments in his basement. Um, <laughs> Do any come to mind? Oh man. Were you talking like putting drive trains together from all the wrong parts from multiple broken bikes kind of thing? Oh or? yeah. Like Suntour and Shimano and, <laughs> and just me saying Suntour should, yeah. like that kind of gives my age away. But you know, there, uh, somebody had posted or had an article in mountain bike action, mountain bike action one time, you know, they tried to lighten up everything. Mm -hmm. And so, they took an uh, answer ATAC stem and like, this was, this was in the day yeah. where they had the quill bolt down mm -hmm. into the head tube. Yeah. They had shaved that piece off at 45 degrees and drilled a hole in the clamp, which would now be the face plate yeah. uh, of the stem. And so we did that once. Oh my gosh. And uh, one time we got the idea of like, man, if we run a second tube in the tire and just drill another hole in the rim, um, then if we flat, we just inflate the second one <laughs> and we, so we tried that. That's um, incredible. Um, How did that work out? I never actually flatted while running it. So it was, I don't know if it was like running like a liner now or something. Were, but it, like pre Kushcore, you guys oh, were already there. Dude, Kushcore was not even an, an yeah, idea yeah, no. at this point. <laughs> um, you're ahead of your time. Yeah. 
This this might have been like running a Kush core. That's what I'm saying. I have no idea, but I never flatted, so I never got to try it out. So the system worked perfectly is what you're telling me. Yeah. 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 Murphy <laughs> kind of looked at it and said, I'm not messing with these guys. Yeah, no. Like, <laughs> so. Wow. Wow. So you weren't real uh, specific on torque specs back then. Tor- torque what? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there was no torque specs. Did any of these like Franken bikes ever just completely explode and betray you on the trail? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There were some wheels that just like the hubs would just blow up and um and brake cables would just get frayed or something and but nothing horrible like a frame coming on like, right. apart at a weld or anything um nothing like that but yeah there was just like times like i think we took like a trek like 830 antelope and put a bunch of really nice like xt on it one time to try and make a super light mountain bike and like it didn't like the i think pete bent the fork or something (laughs) (laughs) ended up throwing it across the trail um so um so yeah that was and through that stuff, like we started to go like, oh, well, let's do some, some more races. And there was mm-hmm. um, a race called, it's now, like, the last time I saw it, it was an Imba Epic. It was called the Raccoon Rally. It's in New York State. And, mm-hmm. and we go to the, again, something that's going to like date me, Norba Nationals. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Like at Mount Snow yeah, and yeah. Traverse City. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so. Yeah, because those weren't too far away from us. Yeah. Um, I even went to the one-time Norba National outside of Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, now you're getting into my territory. I grew up in Southern Illinois. All right. So we had zero good mountain biking around there at the time and almost none now. But yeah, you get over into Indiana and there's something that looks like mountain biking. Yeah. Yeah. It was... Uh, it was a, uh, it was a rain fest. I remember it started raining like oh, yeah. Thursday before the race and didn't stop until like 20 minutes before we started. Which that just turns everything around there into just putty. Yes. Yeah. yeah it was just mud. And, um, I remember Dave Weens like leaning out of the diamondback pit. Cause I was mm-hmm. again on diamondback and he's like, if you finish, dude, I'll give you a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? <laughs> No, oh. <laughs> I bonked, like so massively that I like couldn't even crawl one more lap. Um, oh. So, because my bike weighed, I don't know, like 50 pounds by lap sure. three or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, back then, most of the bikes weighed like 50 pounds without the mud. Right, yeah. 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 Uh, I, mine was at 45 because I'm, you know, oh, smaller, racer. I'm yeah. shorter than you. So, oh, yeah, there's yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So the passion for racing just kind of continued through the years. Yeah, sounds like. it did. Um, you know, I kind of, I eased back a little bit in college. I, I don't know why, but for some reason at 18, when I moved out to Greeley, uh, I was like, oh, all right, I just need to like finish college and not, which is why I went to school in Greeley instead of Fort Collins or Boulder, because I would I'd still be an undergrad. Um, There's strategy yeah. there. Yeah. There's not a lot else to focus on. Right. This is the reason I went to school at the University of Illinois. Same thing as Greeley. Just a campus in the middle of fields. Yeah. There's nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was like, I still rode a bunch, but, um, but just not, not at the same level as I was doing. It was 
for some reason I I became an adult uh, on some level. But not yeah, yeah. Let's be honest, not all, all levels, but only the ones that were necessary. Yeah, to graduate in four years. So. Yeah. So then, what was your route? Well, first of all, what was your educational background? What did you study? Uh, I studied exercise science. Okay. Up in Greeley, and then and actually got a minor in coaching. I had no, I had no, I was just looking for an easy minor. Let's be honest. It's like the exact same thing I did. Get you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't do that, which is why I'm really slow. <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's like there's some there's some requirement to actually removing yourself from the coaching side to have a little bit of focus and be fast. Because if it's your whole life, then I think it's it's hard to like have the bike or training be your whole life and like be fast and yeah. not have something to remove yourself to. Why do you think that is? I mean, there's the obvious burnout, but I don't I don't think that's true for everybody. But mm-hmm. I just think it's. If you're only focused on one thing, like it's, it's hard to give it a hundred percent all the time. You can't be that person a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Variety is the spice of life. I agree. What, what variety did you have in your life beyond cycling, coaching aspects? So growing up in small towns, fishing, hunting, um, we're, we're good variety to get away from athletics and, and racing the bike and then kind of took the fishing through college still love to get out and fly fish these days um it's a nice little break it's a little bit slower than riding the bike and i'm still out in nature and it's fantastic really got into listening to music i don't play anything except for the radio um, <laughs> so um <clears throat> listening to music and then having a son like added definitely added some variety because he's He's a smart kid. He's got his own ideas on what, uh, what is fun. And so I'm, yeah. I'm back to actually being on the ice and coaching his hockey team. Mm. So, oh, no way. Coming full circle. Yeah. That's so that, gotta be pretty fun. That's a lot of fun and adds some variety. So I'm still coaching, which is cool, but mm. I'm coaching a bunch of eight, nine and 10 year olds who have trouble standing up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was growing up Southern Illinois, you know, a million years ago, there was, there was a youth like soccer league, but everybody just called it herd ball mm-hmm. because the kids had no idea what a position was and just wherever the ball went, that's where every kid on the field went except the goalie who was just scared. Mm-hmm. Is that what the hockey is like for these kids? Is it just like, there goes the puck and all the kids go at it or are they too busy trying to stand up? So, um, last year we were still at herd, mm-hmm. herd hockey. Um, this year we're starting to expand beyond herd and like nice passing Ooh, yeah oh. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty cool though to, to watch it evolve like that yeah and be like okay yes you know you watch kids learn doing other stuff but like to watch them learn as a group is really pretty cool that yeah. sounds awesome yeah yeah that's something that i feel like you don't get a whole lot of in cycling as much there's a team but it's, it's very individual yes Unless you move into the track world a little bit, correct? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, um, on able-bodied track side, mm-hmm. um, and just me using that term will play out later when you guys right. ask We're going to get to that question. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, foreshadowing. Yeah. There's uh there's team pursuit and there's mm-hmm. the Madison, which are definitively team events. Like if one person fails, like you could not finish the race. Right. Um, and so. So there's definitely some, some group dynamics and working together in that aspect. 
um, I haven't worked with that at all. Um, oh, okay. Other than, you know, mm -hmm. just knowing the people who are involved. So. Yeah. Yeah. And one of these days we're going to, Supa is going to dip its toe into the track world because that, even from the little that I know, and many people know literally nothing about it, it is a crazy bonkers world all in its own with just nutty different kinds of races that are super fascinating when you understand how much strategy has to go in them. Like way different than just go point your bike into the woods and ride your brains out for three hours. Yeah, it, it's wild. Like there's, uh, so one of the athletes I work with right now, he lives in Toronto and in the wintertime does track stuff. They have a fantastic track up there in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, it, he sent me the schedule for this weekend's races and it's like, one of the races is called the snowball. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, points increase every lap. Mm -hmm. And so the first guy across the line for the first lap gets one point and then two points. And the first guy across the lap on the, across the line on the last lap gets 30 points. Oh. Oh. And, and so they, you know, combine all your points for the whole race to see who wins. So you're not only fighting to try to be at the head of the race at the right time, but to not get pushed too far back too late where you might just get boxed out. Right. And, and then you got to do math too. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got X number of points right now. And then I add, if I get this one, it'll be 10 more. And then, uh, I need to get the lap 15. Um, yeah, it's cr like I doing math on my bike. Yeah, like, no, no, no. Wow. I, I've seen some videos of, uh, the velodrome races where everyone is just trying to track stand and they don't know when the race starts. They're just all waiting there mm -hmm. and it's a random, random time. And then when it goes, they all just have to respond. It's the mentality of those just, it seems totally different. We really need to dive in at some point. Yeah. Yes. That's gonna, that's gonna happen. So from a minor in coaching, mm -hmm. we get to a point later in your life that we just kind of gave a little hint at, which is you mentioned able-bodied Paralympics. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't just a one-step jump. So there was a few things in along the way there. Yeah. There was a lot of things in the way there. <laughs> All right. Well, take us down that road. Um, so I graduated from college and up in Greeley at University of Northern Colorado. Mm -hmm. And when I did, um, I went into the Army on active duty as the second lieutenant and then did that for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, got out and I'd been stationed in... Uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. Okay. Which a lot of people will think, man, as a cyclist, that had to be horrible. It wasn't that bad. There's actually some good road riding yeah, around yep. Manhattan area um, and some, some fun stuff to ride the mountain bike on. I have heard there are trails out there if you're willing to go look for them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Um, but when I got out of the army, I was living right next to kansas state university okay and so uh my wife had graduated from um graduate school of exercise physiology maybe two years before i got out mm -hmm. and so i knew all the professors already and so i applied and i got in and did graduate school there and then when i was getting ready to finish up i was just like what do we want to do where do we want to go and so i applied to like some strength conditioning jobs and but I also applied to CTS here in town. Yeah. So um, I ended up getting a job with CTS right mm -hmm. out of graduate school. 
and then was full time there for five years. Right on. And the time frame here, we're talking 20. This is, I started there like January 4th of 2006. Okay. So, mm-hmm. um, so then did five years there and it was great. Like I will say like Chris and the guys that were working there, especially at that time, did a really good job of developing young coaches and, yeah. um, and bringing us along and, and putting us in a position to succeed. And it is telling the number of people, even through this show or other people that I've talked to in the cycling community, especially in this town, but just in general, that have a connection to CTS one way or another, like the number of people who have been through there and then gone on to have a career in their own right. Yeah. People will say what they want about Chris, fine, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, but without him starting that company, the industry of private coaching in this country almost doesn't exist. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you think about the, the sheer number of people that from a coach and an athlete standpoint that have been through that business, Mm -hmm. it's a lot. And, you know, they put the dollars into marketing and right. really expanding and putting pressure on companies like Training Peaks to, to expand their product. Um, because uh, when I started, CTS had their own schedule building platform. Yeah. Was it great? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it worked at the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, and there was in-house IT building it out on a daily basis, you know, without somebody pushing the boundaries like that, the, just the number of coaches that could survive as that, as their full-time job right now, I think would be significantly less. Wow. I mean, just on our show, we had three, three or four, four, I think different people who started in CTS. There's a lot. Yeah. And so it was a really good experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it opened that door to the next one, which was in 2010, a former CTS coach who had taken the role of head coach slash high performance director for Paralympic cycling called me and said, Hey, I want you to apply for this job as my assistant coach. I hemmed and hawed about it for a little while. Cause I was in a really good spot. It was, it was comfortable. Yeah. I was still learning stuff. I had a good stable athletes. I had started to get some professionals. And so it was really enticing for me to stay, but I talked to, talked to him a little bit more. And then I, I applied. And I think one of the things I had going for me that other applicants did not was I, I was a veteran and I had been yeah. in combat and I had friends who had lost limbs. Um, I lost some friends and, and friends who had traumatic brain injuries. Um, mm-hmm. So I knew like how to interact with them. What do you mean by that? I, I, wasn't, I wasn't scared to talk about the injury or the disability or, and I wasn't scared to not talk about it either. Like I wasn't like, just staring at it. Right. It wasn't a distraction for me mm-hmm. either way. It was just part of life. Now, you know, I could go up, talk to that person, just have a coffee or a beer and be like, yeah, let's talk about life. Let's talk about riding bikes or let's not talk about riding bikes. Let's yeah. talk about your injury or let's not talk about your injury. I don't care. Whereas somebody else might be like overly curious, but mm-hmm. afraid to like even put that out there. Mm-hmm. Cause it can be, it's pretty awkward. Like yeah. if you don't know. Just seeing the human beyond whatever they've been through in that, that specific ordeal. Yeah. So what finally tipped the scales for you to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. So I got offered the job. I talked to my wife and I found out you could make more than like 
30 grand as a coach. (laughs) 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 Uh, Which, like, I'm not one to be wrapped up in money because... Yeah, but it's useful. But it is useful occasionally. Um, Yeah. And in the end, that definitely became, like, a non-priority because, like, wow, I got to travel. I Mm -hmm. had to travel to some cool spots. I still get to travel to cool spots. I got to learn a different skill set in the cycling world of, like, Oh, wow. We are for real racing. This is not like, you know, you show up, I'll pick on Boulder because it's fun. Sure. Um, you know, like the, the Bull, North Boulder crit or something. And, yeah, you know, you're just like helping riders warm up or something. No, this is like, we are lugging trainers through airports in wheel cases. And um, we've got team wheels and mechanics and I'm driving cars and time trials now. And which is super fun. Tell me about that. I've always wondered what it's like to be behind the wheel in the madness of bikes everywhere and motos and other cars. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to drive a follow car in a time trial. Um, I, was, I showed up to my first road world championships in 2011 and my boss at the time just like threw me some keys and said, hey, you're following this person, this person, and this person. Um, make sure, talk to the mechanics about getting wheels for them. Okay. All right. Yeah. Here we go. So... Um, we're in Roskilde, Denmark, 60 degrees and rainy every day. First day of racing. Like I am following a guy who I just got into the program. He was a Marine, like severe TBI, but it still rides a regular two wheeler. Just, Mm -hmm. uh, can't turn right to save his life. Um, unless he's moving at 20 miles an hour. Like you try to get him to turn right at four miles an hour and he'll fall over. Um, wait, but he can turn left. Oh yeah. All day long. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, and he, uh, so wait, does that mean that he just, if there's a sharp corner, he just has to pin it and hope he stays up? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Um, which didn't happen by the way. He, he, uh, he hit something on the first big right hander and like peeled the tubular off the rim and I'd jump out with a spare and get him up. And he'd also dislocated his shoulder, but that didn't, he, I, as I'm changing the tire, the wheel, he, puts his shoulder back in by jamming like full on like lethal weapon lethal style weapon just style yeah puts it into a yeah, wall rigs just no he like used his knees put his hands between his knees and like, yanked it back by standing upright um so pretty <laughs> close to lethal weapon style wow. just pulls the rigs on the side of the road and mm-hmm. um changing the the wheel um and then he finished uh so wait did you know that that was happening or did you just look over see him do that and think i'm gonna ask him about that later I knew he could do that, but I didn't expect it at the time. So many questions. The fact that you knew he could do it is like three more questions deep. (laughs) Why that was a thing. (laughs) He was a bull rider in high school. He went to high school in California and apparently they have high school rodeo there, which I didn't know was the thing, but, uh, (laughs) okay. All right. Still got into the Marine Corps with that skill. That's impressive. Yeah, actually. All right, so wait, we have you on the side of the road changing a tire in the first right-hander of a race. It's the first time you've ever driven behind somebody, and you watch him put his shoulder back in, and then what? He got back on the bike, and he finished the race. He did flat the other wheel, though, somehow, and so I had to change another wheel on the same bike (laughs) in the same race. Um, And then it was quiet for a while. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it it wasn't until, like, 2000 and. 13 so two years of racing before i had to jump out of the car again and change it change a wheel now how often are you out of the car in something like that i mean it doesn't sound like very often i 
I might be the unlucky one. (laughs) (laughs) I seem to get out of the car a lot. Oh, okay. Um, Do the riders know this? Like, oh no, like drinkers behind us. It's the checkers or wreckers kind of thing, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I did follow a gold medalist at the Paralympic Games two months ago, but I also followed a dude I had to get out of the car for. Um, and so, yeah, I, so I jumped out in 13 to change a wheel on a hand cycle that had overcooked the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, let's see, I jumped out in, I think I made it all through 14 without getting out of the car. I think I made it through 15 without getting out of the car. 18, I had to jump out of the car after a, a trike overcooked a corner on like this super sketchy bridge in Italy. Like, like Stonewall side or Stonewall along the side, like you go into that, it's going to be a hospital trip? Not quite that bad. Okay. But like a descent with a stone, with a rock wall. Okay. Yeah. Like, like the mm-hmm. cliff Like face. the cliff, yeah. Which means there's no, nothing on the other side. No, no, it was it was the cliff face going up. Oh, and down on the other side was mm-hmm. a cliff going down to a river. Right, and then ninety to the bridge over the river at high speed, and they had put pads poorly spaced um, on the on the railing of the bridge, which was okay. It's it's one and a half cars wide, um, but the railing like. If you wanted to jump into the river below, it's not a challenge to get over the railing. Okay. Type of situation. Yeah. Um, so trike height, but that's about it? Yeah, yeah. So when you say trike height, you mean like... Yeah, which, no. which are we talking here? So our trikes are uprights. Okay. It's basically a road frame with okay. axle bolted to the back that has a wheel on each side. And the oh. cog set is in the middle and it's two-wheel drive. And then there's disc Whoa. brakes okay. that attach to the axle All right. and not the hub. Oh. So. Okay. So we've got somebody on what already sounds like something that wants to tip over, mm-hmm. making yes. a 90 onto a bridge at speed. Yes. All right. Pick it up from there. Uh, so if you ride in a trike, everything you know about riding a bike, reverse it. Yeah. Okay. So you lean the opposite direction and that pulls you in, basically pulls your body to the outside of the turn instead of leaning into it. Mm -hmm. So to take that turn at speed, she had to get a little more outside than what we would do on a two-wheeler. And so that caused her to clip the pads and then flip over the bars. Yeah. Oh, geez. Not into the river though. Not into the river. No, she landed on the bridge and um, then I had to go EMT out of the car. And then uh, then I had to try to, while caring for this patient i had to try to teach a young media person from the usopc how to drive stick so she could get my car out of the way (laughs) 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 one of the italians ended up moving my car (laughs) um because i wasn't good at teaching someone how to drive stick without being in the car um funny enough <laughs> yeah and then this year uh, at paralympic games i had to jump out of the car for a trike that in his defense it was not an easy corner but it was also like there was another trike on the inside and a moto on the outside and like six more cars stacked up on the entry to the the corner and so i had to like run through the cars between the moto and the fence and somehow get him back on his, but I don't remember a lot of it. It was, it all happened very fast. Wow. 
Wow. So the great part about that particular trip is below that bridge, there was a fantastic swimming hole. Like okay. This like glacial runoff Italian Alps water mm. was just like this cool turquoise color. And there was a little dam. Oh man. And locals were swimming down there and the other coach and I were like, well, we're going to find a way to go swimming in that. That's kind of like our thing is like, wherever we go, we find something fun to do. Yeah. A lot of times it involves jumping in the ocean. Sure. Um, yeah. Which in Belgium is not as much fun as it sounds, but. That doesn't sound like fun at all. It's quite cold. <laughs> yes. But in Italy, in mm -hmm. on a hot August day. Uh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I later in the race week, I found myself positioned on the hill just after that bridge and so between races i would uh i wore my my board shorts out to the race that day and between <laughs> races would sneak down and jump in and then hike back up to the race course and pick up my radio again and start working oh that's awesome <laughs> so um so yeah there's there's all kinds of weird stories like that like uh then the little town near that spot mm -hmm. there was a an American who had married an Italian whose in-laws owned the little cafe there right on the race course. And I'm like, yeah, well, this is crazy. Yeah. Like, what are you doing here? He had lived in Colorado Springs been stationed here in the air force. What? Yeah. And so I can still keep in touch with him on Instagram. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. How do how do you make this stuff up? Yeah, you don't. So, so I've known a couple para athletes in my life, a friend of mine in college who played basketball, uh, a couple other things. And one of the, characteristics that has struck me of the few people that I've known that are in that space is an utter and absolute fearlessness with their own body. Oftentimes, like some of us who are more or less able-bodied would think like, geez, after a catastrophic injury or loss of a limb or something like that, you might be a little more on the protective side. It seems to be almost the opposite. Have you found this to be the case or have I just got some oddball like outliers? No, this is absolutely the case. Like they are more willing to take big risks to win. Why? I don't have an answer for that question, but, but it's like, it's absolutely true. Like I have seen people like ride lines that like mm -hmm. as an able-bodied rider with a decent amount of experience, I'm like, no way, uh, -uh not yeah. trying that. Yeah. Um, and, and do some crazy things on their machines that I'm just like, in awe of um and and push themselves to a level of like physical discomfort that at, at 45 i'm just now beginning to like wrap my head around and and find the pathway to yeah it's crazy the the levels they will go to 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 win or or just improve and again you like, do you have an idea? Have you talked to any of them and asked, like, you're already missing a leg or you're already down another body part or half your brain or whatever it is? You can't turn right anymore. Like, why keep pushing? Sometimes, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I've asked that or had a conversation that's similar to that. And, like, and a lot of times their answer will be like, because it's fun, because it makes me feel alive still. Yeah. Um, because I, I still want to go fast. You know, the number of number of athletes that I've worked with over the years that uh, got to Paralympic cycling because of like a motorcycle incident. Yeah. Particularly. Uh, <laughs> is pretty large. Okay. Um, yeah. Or that can relate their injury to, you know, 
some sort of motorcycle incident and you're just like okay speed and poor judgment got you here <laughs> you still want to chase those two things yes because i feel alive when i do okay all right go for it that's awesome see you've yeah. been pretty deeply embedded in this world for just around 10 years now yeah 10 years does that mean you've been a part of three different olympics paralympics um i skipped out on on 2016 uh on the olympic games there uh in rio because I, I actually tried to like reduce my role in coaching a little bit and which might have my own answers in like trying to feel alive and poor judgment um i tried to coach and be a firefighter at the same time that was oh somehow made interesting it, somehow made it through about 18 months but uh then decided hey coaching fits my life better and it's what i feel like i really want to do mm -hmm. um don't get me wrong firefighting great career great people um great opportunity for a lot of people yeah just like at the time wasn't for me mm -hmm. had i had i gotten into that world before i started coaching probably wouldn't be coaching but yeah. You can only do so many things in life. Somebody said the other day, you can only do three things well. I think at that time I was trying to do five or six. And mm. um, again, poor judgment and like feeling like I'm going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Pretty good for a while until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there is more than one way to bonk in life. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I was wondering what it was like to be on that world stage. You're talking about as, as a coach, you're helping with all the logistics and you're getting all this stuff through airports. I saw some pictures of the recent Paralympic games in Tokyo. That was pretty, it was pretty wild. See the, the stacks and stacks of all the equipment that you had to take over there. What was it like getting there? It wasn't too bad. I'll say in the 10 years that I've been working with Paralympic cycling, it's gotten a lot better. You know, the first few years were dragging everything we're dragging multiple wheel sets for the team trainers rollers um work stands tons of stuff everywhere we go maybe not t literal tons but like when i went to london i personally checked 41 pieces of baggage oh oh my gosh <laughs> Wow. and then 41 yes and then i one of our mechanics who was flying with me i think she checked another 30 okay wait is there like does the does the scale keep going up you know like all right this bag is ten dollars three bags is 50 bucks do they just keep jacking it up or <laughs> you just kind of top out you just kind of top out like we and and luckily we were flying on the airline that sponsored the u.s Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Oh. And so it's like, okay, we've arranged to pay this much. Do you have to call ahead when you're going to do that to let them know? Like, by the way, yes. we're, we're bringing an actual box truck? Yes. Um, yes, we are bringing an actual box truck. This time when I flew to Tokyo, I checked five pieces. Oh, not so bad. Yeah. Huh. Um, so we, we shipped pallets beforehand. Okay. And we ship pallets from the US and we ship pallets from Belgium because we have stuff stored in Belgium now to make our travel a lot easier. And it turns out it's cheaper to just keep stuff there than to fly back and forth with it. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, it's gotten significantly easier on that aspect. But when you go somewhere new, like Tokyo, 
you've got to have everything. So props to our mechanics for like spending extra days in Europe making packing lists by hand and like inventorying everything that went on the pallet and then wrapping it and shipping it and then doing the same back here in the States um, in multiple locations. So in Colorado Springs, where we've got stuff and then in LA at the velodrome where we've got stuff and doing this all during the pandemic too, which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. What, what was that like when the games got delayed? Like, I mean, that wasn't an overnight decision, obviously, but it wasn't like something that you had time to plan for. Right. Uh, that was tough because first is hard on staff because it's like, all right, well, we have been planning with our athletes to peak at this time. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. Um, for the athletes, it was even harder because it's like, oh, I have put my whole life into this. And now best case, I wait another year. Which is best case. I, I can't put myself in those shoes and say like what it was really like, because I, I only know it from the coach side and the athletes that I work with, I tried to like put a positive spin on it. Mm -hmm. We're going to make this a dress rehearsal basically. And so I'm going to build out this whole rest of the summer that we have, and we're going to train like we're going to the games and see where your fitness is at. And then next year, we've either got a really good blueprint or we know where we have to make improvements. And so that, that was the spin that I put on it for my athletes. It worked out pretty well. Yeah. Not perfect, but mm -hmm. pretty well. To go, it was kind of a relief. It was like, okay, we're going to go. That little bit of extra pressure is off of like not knowing. Like, yeah. And we had some athletes that were like, oh, I'm going to retire after this one. Well, that's hard because now you're like, you've got this mental timeline yeah. laid out in your head and you have to extend it a year. I, I that's got to be hard. Did you have some changes on the team then? Some additions, some people who said, I, I just can't do this. Yeah. We had some people that were like, and I don't know if it was a, a conscious, like, nope, can't do it. Or more of a, I fell apart trying to, to mm -hmm. extend it and just couldn't, couldn't maintain the, like we've talked about earlier, the hundred miles an hour for another year. Yeah. There was a couple of people that were in line to go in 2020 that weren't weren't getting on airplanes back in august so wow that had to be immensely hard as a coach as well i mean hard for them for sure mm -hmm. but was that also difficult for you to know like man these people that i've worked with potentially for years they should have been on this plane oh yeah i didn't work with any of them personally one-on-one -on -one as their coach but like mm -hmm. as a team staff those ones that you know we put in time with on team trips and camps and stuff it's hard. It's like, man, oh, dude, you would have done well on this course. Or, you know, you just would have added something to the team in general and an intangible that we might have needed. Yeah. And now it's not there. So, mm -hmm. so as team staff, then you're trying to fill in the gaps. And athletes being athletes are always going to be like, oh, man, it would have been, you know, this event would have been so much better had so-and-so been in there. Or this could have been totally different had this person been there yeah you know then as a coach 
and team staff, you're like, hey, you know what? That's not where we're at right now. Like mm-hmm. good, bad, or otherwise, we have to try to make the most out of what we have. So you, you deal with that snippet of reality and then you're like, nope, we're just going to positive spin it and go give it a hundred percent. Whatever you have on that day, a hundred percent of that. Yep. And see what happens. That's, that's getting some wisdom. Uh, just, you have your locus of control and going beyond that just adds unneeded stress. Yeah. And, and that's what happens to athletes. Like a lot of times at races, like there's a lot of downtime, a lot of laying around and like sitting in the hotel especially this like the only place you could not wear your mask was in your room yeah talk us through this trip what was it like i mean what what was just give us day in the life you are in japan what was it like day in day out it was uh wake up hang out in your room for a little bit do some work go to breakfast go back to your room change go like either go for a ride or go to the race course and train um and then go back to the hotel, have another meal, do some more work, go to bed. Um, like really, that's that was it. We were a little bummed because we didn't get to fully experience the Japanese culture mm-hmm. and some of the things that the uniquenesses that they have. Um, I always get a little bummed when I don't get to eat a lot of like local food. Yeah, I think you mentioned when we saw you at the Apex that you basically got some sashimi at the airport on the way out and that was it yeah that was i got sashimi and and a noodle bowl at the airport and and that was it so we were like the whole team was basically stuffing themselves at the airport because that was the only real japanese food we got in the lounge at the airport leaving oh Um, Oh my gosh as someone who's been to japan not during covid that's a crime i i agree like i said the only place you could not wear your mask was in your room or Mm. if you were on your bike so as team staff, normally we're not, we go and we ride the course and we check it out with athletes. We were pressing our luck on how much we were on our bikes. <laughs> because first of all, we got to ride on an F1 course at uh, Fuji International Speedway. So that was kind of cool. Was that pavement just like butter? Oh my God, so smooth. Yeah, this is like, like, so I run 28s or 30s on my yeah. bike. Yeah, yeah, and yeah I, I do like too. Pumping them up pretty high. <laughs> like, like how high? Like 100. Like, oh, because like, 28s at 100? Yeah. Cause you could just roll everything and just lay the bike over and turn. And it was so smooth. Um, It was incredible. Um, I wouldn't have done that on race day though. Cause it was pouring rain. Um, Oh no. But I mean, that's part of it. Like you gotta race and whatever. Um, So getting to ride on that, getting to hang out at Fuji International Speedway, really cool experience. Mm -hmm. Even if you're wearing a mask and, and you look around and, I won't say everybody because there's just a couple of countries that like are just like whatever. Um, <laughs> most people are wearing their masks mm-hmm. and and most people are following the rules. And so you just try to like deal with it the best you can. Yeah. Like that's those are our only options, really. Like and being from the US, like it doesn't matter what sport you're in, if you are even cutting a corner a little bit, everybody's gonna notice. Yeah. Right. Because we're mm-hmm. a big team almost always. Everywhere we go, we do sometimes fall into the stereotype of being loud Americans. <laughs> um, reputation there. And yeah. so, um, so yeah, like we put down a pretty strict guidance to the athletes and to the staff. Like, hey, follow the rules. It's just going to be easier that way. Yeah. So, and it does end up usually being easier because then after a couple of days of 
being under the eyeball, people start to look away to different countries and be like, oh, okay. Hey. Yeah. What are they doing over there? Yeah. yeah. So-and-so is not wearing their masks ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Americans are being, they're behaving themselves. We'll leave them alone. Yeah. So. That's not normally what happens to us. <laughs> yeah, about, exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't help but note. You spent some time driving a sport vehicle during these races, and some of the race was on an F1 track. Does this mean you were driving a support vehicle on an F1 track? I, I was driving a support vehicle on an F1 track, right side drive as well. The only two times I have driven on a racetrack, Tokyo and London. Both right-hand both drive. Both right-hand drives. Both a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Courses, Brands Hatch outside of London and Fuji International um, in Japan. And it's a lot of fun. And I won't say I broke any rules like outright. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do anything dangerous to the athletes. Let me put it that way. I didn't do anything dangerous to any athletes from any country. But I enjoyed myself for sure. <laughs> Did you have to put your tires up on the little stripy bits on the inside of the corner a couple of times? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like there was one corner in Tokyo that like, yes, uh, it was, there was a chicane on the time trial that like on a, on a bicycle, mm -hmm. you could just fly and you know, there's 30 feet of pavement. Oh yeah. It's forever to go. And so you like, you really had to like screw up the line to get on the, the stripey bits um mm -hmm. but in the car like i just letting it drift out and <laughs> over those bumps <laughs> a little bit yeah oh that's amazing yeah it's a lot of fun it's good that you got to have some some extra fun out there it seems like a, a bummer that there was no real opportunity to do like big gatherings or any kind of party for the olympic team while you're in tokyo yeah you know a few of our athletes went to uh, closing ceremonies, which I heard were a lot of fun, but you know, in general for, for cycling, it, it's still kind of a big gathering. So, you know, we're at the racetrack and everybody gets their own paddock basically. So you're, you're all next to one another and you just get to walk up and down the row and see all your friends from different countries, which is, which is still cool. Even if we're all having to wear masks and do some things differently, it was still a good time. And, and you got some of that social interaction that I don't think they got in some other sports. So two big questions that I've got about the world of like para-athletics. The first one, and it's more cycling specific, how on earth do you split up and categorize all of the athletes with different levels of ability? Like, how does that work? Luckily, I'm, I'm sort of outside that. Okay. Um, is the easy answer. Yeah. Um, but in cycling, and I can only speak to cycling because I don't know anything about the, the classifications for the other sports. We have 13 different competitive categories. For hand cycle, it's pretty straightforward. It's just the level of the spinal cord injury. Okay. Um, so like a C1 is a really high mm -hmm. cervical. It's like a C6. Is it six? Forget which way the numbers go, but... Mm -hmm. Um, and then a C2 is like a, a C7 on, on your cervical vertebrae. And then a C or a, sorry, an H3 okay. is, so hand cycles start with H, mm -hmm. trikes start with T, 
uprights start with a C. Okay. Um, H3 is like, I think it's like T10 or T11 okay. uh, on their thoracics. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to, you know, our H5s, which is basically a low lumbar spinal injury or a high single leg amputation or d- sometimes two below or above the knee amputations. Um, so that one's a little more flexible as far as who can be in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, with the trikes, it's usually something like a stroke where it only affects one side of the body or like oh, some yeah. severe CP. Like balance impairment kind of stuff. A lot of balance impairment, a lot of partial paralysis mm-hmm. of one side of the body. And then with the upright the C categories, that's where it gets pretty muddy. Um, okay. How come? Because there's a lot of different things and we have a, that, that can either qualify a person to compete or disqualify a person to compete. And um, is this where we get into like neurological stuff or vision impairments and those kind of things, or are those two separate categories as well? Those are two separate categories. So, we, so visual impairments, you ride on the back of a tandem. With, right. an, mm-hmm. with an able-bodied pilot. Yeah, um, Katie Compton. Yeah, Katie Compton yeah. piloted for the yeah, team for a little piloting, while. Yeah. Then the visually impaired rider is on the back. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of communication that has to happen between those two. Uh, anybody that's ridden a tandem knows that like... Yeah, you gotta talk it out. You gotta, you, like, it's gotta be some good practice yeah. there. Um, and then the, with the C categories, yeah, we'll have neurological impairments, we'll have amputations, um, birth defects, um, um, cerebral palsy, but not severe. You'll have spinal cord injuries that are partial. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person can walk around and might have some muscular deficiencies. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty muddy. Luckily in the U.S. we have a really good kind of outlet to ask questions on. The UCI certifies people as classifiers to look at this individual's impairment, see where they should fit in or mm-hmm. not fit in yeah. um, and then place them in that, that category. And then the first time they go through that process, they get marked as an R, which is review. Okay. And so they have to be seen again in a certain amount of time. And then the second time they go back, they may get a C, which is confirmed. They may get another R. Um, but we have a friend who's a physical therapist up in Seattle mm-hmm. um, and he is a UCI classifier. So whenever we have questions, we call Eric. <laughs> you just call Eric and let him sort exactly. it out. Exactly. Yes. Um, and he's a bike fitter too. So if you're in the Seattle area listening. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Go see Eric Moen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That just seems like a mind boggling amount of rules. Cause the UCI obviously has a reputation of being a little pedantic and a little bit nitpicky about normal able-bodied cycling. So add in a whole extra set of rules of what does or doesn't count that I can't even get my head around. No, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? This doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So we have all the regular road rules uh, that the UCI has. At, like mm-hmm. no fading on the last lap. Raise your hand if you've broken that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, don't drive too close to your athlete. Um, things like that. Can uh, you have double the sock height? If it's only one sock, because they've only got one leg? No, you still have to have the same, the mid-calf, cut it off. Um, <laughs> sometimes in our sport, like, 
in paracycling, mm-hmm. that joke goes over really well. Yeah, we're going to see whether or not we leave that in for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry if anyone's offended. Don't be. Okay. The athletes aren't. Um, and so, yeah, we have all the regular UCI rules to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then we have those. And I've definitely seen some athletes like downtrodden, heartbroken, and and just plain frustrated by those rules. Yeah. It, they're difficult. And, and when you get into the weeds of it, like one of the things that qualifies an athlete is a is balance issues. And mm-hmm. the medical term is ataxia. Sure. And I didn't even know this until last week. Uh, there are multiple kinds of ataxia and only one will qualify you as a Paralympic cyclist. Really? Yes. So stumbling home from the bar does not qualify you? Definitely not. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Jason, you're safe. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, so I didn't I didn't even know that until there, there's like a central ataxia which comes from the brain, and then a mm-hmm. I forget what the other one is called, but it's that second one won't qualify you as a Paralympic cyclist. I'm learning so much right now. I think this just yeah. yeah. I mean, we have a, a friend of ours who is going to be on the show eventually. We hope who made a narrow pass at the ski team, mm-hmm. the Paralympic ski team, and she was talking about that, which is some of the, what got this conversation going between Josh and I of her talking about trying to figure out like, okay, well I've only got one leg, but she can't see. And that girl's got this other thing. And like, how are we supposed to line all this up and decide when this is a fair fight? Yeah. I see it gets even more confusing sometimes at the, at the games when you're talking Paralympic games, because now there, there's only so many medals. Right. And so, which means sometimes classes compete against one another. So in the, like in the road race, mm-hmm. Um, he'll have multiple classes competing for one podiums, one set of podiums. So multiple kinds of equipment on the road too, or is it all trikes? Or... So it might be all trikes or okay. all yeah, two wheelers or whatever. Two wheelers, but they're all com- but like if you're talking specifically, the one that blows my mind is like there's a C one two three race, and so C ones yeah. usually are impaired in all four limbs or they're down to like two limbs <laughs> <laughs> might not be a match set versus a c3 there are c3s that have all four limbs and that you can barely tell when they're just standing still okay or, and- or if you were to pass one riding a bike you'd be like no way these people are competing against one another for wow. one set of medals Oof. um is it fair not always, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, the upside is most of our athletes are actually all of our athletes are adults. Like we have one of the older teams. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, Hey man, we all know life is not fair. Like everybody like, gets the game. Like look up and down the row here. There's yeah. a whole bunch of unfairness <laughs> happening <laughs> like all over the place. Does it ever happen in those races though, that somebody who's only got a couple of limbs ends up on top? Absolutely. And is that just the best feeling in the world when somebody who looks like they're the underdog in that situation pulls it out anyway? Yeah. Yeah. There, so um, there's a kid from Spain um, who is like a double below the knee amputee and he's got one arm that's, I, I don't think it's full length, but mm-hmm. he's basically got a flipper for a hand. Yep. And then the other arm is uh, either just above or just below the elbow. Uh, missing okay that kid is fast 
Like there's like hands down fast because everything he got left contributes to the engine going forward. Wow. So his power to weight ratio is just off the charts. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, good kid. One of my personal athletes has to compete against him. So it's a little Mm. painful, (laughs) but, uh, but he's a nice guy. So I can't complain too much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that kid, like he will beat some people who have all four limbs. That's insane. Yeah. And, and even if you look in town, there's a guy in town who's uh, got some birth defects. Um, I think he teaches math over at UCCS. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really fast. I've talked to him. He's never wanted to really compete, mm-hmm. but you'd never know it by how fast he goes up the canyon. well i've i mean i work downtown Mm -hmm. and i'll be out at you know the wild goose or something uh somewhere downtown here in the springs and i've seen a lot of your athletes from the team out and about occasionally either on group rides or solo and just as a cyclist when you watch somebody ride by you know you can't help but judge like all right how fast are they like and i've seen some people tearing through downtown at frightening speeds and i'm like yeah i got more limbs than she does but i can't win like, I'm not going to make that happen. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fun. It's, it's a lot of fun to, to, to watch them handle their bikes, mm-hmm. to watch them go as fast as they do. It's a lot of fun. What, what an amazing world to be a part of. This is, it's so cool to hear some of the inside info on something that is so often misunderstood in the large portion of our, our sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it is a lot. Like it is a lot of fun. I would, we, a couple of us had lunch with our boss the other day and he's like, you guys still want to do this? And we're like, yeah, cause this is fun. Like, this is a lot of fun to, to call work. Like, that's awesome. What have been some of your favorite aspects of what you're doing? And I like the travel is fantastic. Seeing other countries, other cultures, meeting other people, having, you know, friends in different countries. It's such a cool feeling to be like, yeah, we are expanding our own knowledge about other people and, and just seeing some cool things and that a lot of people in in America, which is like hands down, probably like one of the more, or one of the top like countries, as far as like how easy our life is Mm -hmm. i get to go experience other places that a lot of people in the u.s just don't even even as easy as our life is they're just they're never going to have that opportunity to go to um a little town in italy or um yeah hang out on the beach in belgium and and freeze because they just jumped into like you know they watched uh dunkirk (laughs) <laughs> and, we watched Dunkirk, and then we went and jumped in the North Sea. Oh, like, gosh. Oh, that would have been horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, there's too many, too many people in the U.S. just aren't going to have the opportunity. And so I'm like, I cherish those opportunities. And then, yeah, I get to do my job as a cycling coach while I'm doing that. Like, like how lucky am I? One of the things in all sports, not just cycling, but all sports, you get a lot of the energy behind it from competition. And a lot of the energy from competition comes from media revenue, right? Like what drives the Olympics is that giant contract from NBC, not completely, but I mean, that's a big chunk of the effort, right? 
where do you see para sports and cycling, but all of it going in the future? Cause like that's, you know, obviously that's a debate where if it's not just men's sports in a particular category, everybody says there's no money, so we're not going to televise it. Right. Uh, that, I mean, that's a frustrating topic because, you know, I'm first, I'm married to a collegiate swimmer. Mm-hmm. So swimming doesn't necessarily, unless it's Olympic swimming, doesn't right. drive a lot of revenue. Nope. Um, female sports, which personally I think are pretty awesome. If you haven't watched oh, yeah. women's college hockey, you should check it out. Those girls okay. are bloodthirsty. Um, <laughs> uh, and then just, the, you know, the level of, of competition mm-hmm. outside of those main sports that we see on TV. It's intense. Partly because there's no money. Right. You don't get people like whining about contracts and things and, you know, like mm-hmm. sitting on the sidelines because they're like, well, I'm not getting paid what I, what I want. So I'm just going to not, I'm just going to sit here. But like, especially in cycling, like you look at women's cycling and the lower echelons of elite cycling, it yeah. is a dogfight every day. And so I think that could be really inspiring to people if they like, took a few minutes to just watch it. And for parasports, the Paralympic Games, man, if you can sit and watch that and not um, like be inspired or like have a, if you watch it for two whole weeks and don't have some sort of like emotional breakdown, like really, like you're not, you're not paying attention because there's some, like, it doesn't matter what country they're from. Like there's some, really inspiring stories about the athletes, you know, um, that, that are fantastic. Yeah. You have people that have lost limbs or been injured in wars. You have people that were born that way. We have a couple of Chernobyl babies on the U.S. team. Yeah. No way. Mm -hmm. And so the one on the second team is definitely, she was born near Chernobyl. Uh, there's one on the swimming team. She was born in Siberia, so they don't think it was related, but they don't know for certain. Yeah. But she was born to a very young mother in um, Siberia. And so like, well, yeah, like your only hope of survival is you get adopted by a U.S. family. Wow. Yeah. I can't, the needs of this child. Oh, we have a, a former New York state trooper who was diagnosed with MS and like is in her 50s and like has like two adopted children and one of her own and put them all through school and races a trike. Wow. So, you know, I'm not trying to like prop up any of these athletes. They don't need it. Like they're Mm -hmm. figuring out their situations and like going after what they want. And so, yeah, if you're not inspired by that, I don't know, you're probably not human. Mm. You're some sort of reptile or something, but, um, but yeah, like that's what we need to put on TV. Yeah. Not, I don't want to pick on any particular sport, but not those athletes that are like, they want me to sign for 17 million instead of 19. Like, yeah. get over yourself, buddy. You're, you get to play a game for a living. Like. Yeah. We're with you. Yeah. We're with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. What are some things that you've learned in this journey, living life with these athletes? Oh man, um, that's a deep question. Cause I'm sure there's like one really like 
phenomenal answer to this question, but there's so many like little answers that build up to that, that, that putting that one phenomenal answer together would be, would take us more time than we have today. Um, it doesn't have to be perfect. What are a couple of the little ones then? Yeah. And the little ones, man, I'm, first of all, I'm lucky. Yeah. My, my noodles a little scrambled for more and I got some PTSD, but overall, like I came back with all the pieces intact and I get to do this fun job that I want to do for a living and help them. That's, that's one. Um, two is that like, no matter what my situation is, I can make it better with effort and attitude. That's a huge thing right there. And I think the third would just be some humility because like, I don't know, but I can't speak for all the Paralympic teams, but like on cycling, there's, everybody's got an ego. So everybody like lets it slip a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah. but I'll say for the most part, like nobody's like egotistical. Even the ones that like get a couple of medals at a games, like, yeah, I got a medal. I'm going to go back to my regular life that I have of riding bikes and, you know, just living at home afterwards. So yeah. it's, it's pretty awesome. The humility that I get to learn from them. Well, that's excellent. I'm sure they're grateful to have you in their lives as well. Yeah. Someone to journey with them in the midst of all this. Yeah. Uh, as, as we start to head towards wrapping up here, <laughs> um, we have some, some typical questions that we try to ask. Yeah. Here on the show, we do have a few standards as right. we get near the end of the interview. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them being, what if you can remember back through all of your days on the bike, what are some of the most ridiculous encounters that you've personally had? Straddling the bike, what is some of the most ridiculous stuff that's occurred? Oh, man. Um, I stalked you guys by, by like, binge listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I didn't remember this question coming up, so I didn't prepare <laughs> for it. Um, so, man, I've had some ridiculous encounters with animals yeah. over the years. Um, you know, like, I've come up on a couple bears. Um, I got passed by a logging truck one time, and then, and then this bear, like, tumbled down the hill after the logging <laughs> truck, right, and we're just standing in the highway staring at each other. Um, that was pretty ridiculous. Um, I lived in Estes Park for a while and, uh, I used to come out, like open the front door and ride to work. And there was an elk eating our flowers. So I had to jump off the deck with my bike. <laughs> I wasn't straddling it at the time, but, yeah, yeah. um, but it, I had it in my hand. I think, uh, but then like without animals, like we were in Belgium earlier this year. Mm -hmm the coaching staff went out for a ride on a day when most of the athletes decided they weren't going to ride because it was like full on Flemish weather. Oh boy. Like wind was howling off the sea. Um, if you guys scroll back through my Instagram enough, you can find a video of me standing and the bike almost out at 90 degrees from my body. Oh, no way. <laughs> and I'm putting zero effort into lifting the bike i'm putting effort into standing upright because <laughs> the wind is just whipping around so don't take your deep dish rims that day yeah unfortunately i was on some i wasn't on deep dish rims but i was on an aero frame oh no that was getting that doesn't help around. no it did not nice sail i might have been on some like head 
forties or something that were, <laughs> that were just getting pushed around. It was not the best choice of equipment, but yeah, I can't think of like something that I just go, that was the weirdest thing ever. Cause every time I say that was the weirdest thing ever, like something else pops up, like in high school, Pete and I got chased by, we started getting chased by dogs and then mm. we got chased by like an ostrich or an emu or something. <laughs> and then right. could not go back the way we came and like the weather turned and we're like out there in t-shirts and, and it's like 40 degrees in southwestern New York, northwestern PA and we're bonking and we, <laughs> we had enough money for like a liter of Jolt Cola to get us home. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Jolt. Oh man, I have not heard that in so long. Yeah, so that's right up there with I mean, just drinking Jolt Cola, that's yeah. kind of on the list of ridiculous things I've oh, yeah, you're experienced on the bike. Yeah. It's our first ostrich encounter. Yeah. On the yeah. show, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kudos. <laughs> Thanks. Well. So, we, yeah. So that leads into the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Best day, worst day on the bike. Yeah. Um, I'd say best day is actually a much harder question mm. because, I mean, I have bonked, I have broken things but i never look back at at those days that i've had really bad bonks or i had to ride like 15 miles standing up one time because i broke a saddle um did you take it out because that always scares me yeah no no, i left it it was like it wasn't i left (laughs) it on the bike the saddle the saddle was still there i just couldn't sit on it oh i see um yeah so um yeah that would have been dangerous. Um, mm. And and I've never looked back at those days and gone like, man, that was absolutely like bad. You know, I just didn't enjoy it on some level. And I know you guys have heard this before, but like, yeah, all the days on the bike, good, bad, or otherwise, all have some piece of like excellent experience that yeah that kept me from quitting. Mm. riding bikes mm-hmm. so um or and made you know the days where nothing wrong nothing went wrong even better yeah so I, best day is hard hard question but i'll say like i'll say best day as a coach mm-hmm. was was at the paralympic games this year when one of my personal athletes won a silver medal um in time trial i was pretty excited about that like I think I was like posting Instagram from the follow car lineup. I was like <laughs> waiting for the next athlete and I'm posting on Instagram. <laughs> like, wow. So, um, which like that, I, like I never try to be that quick on social media, but I was pretty excited about that. So yeah. Worst day. That's unfortunately just a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, and it kind of combines like worst day as a coach, worst day on the bike. It was 2012 and I was full-time at the training center with the team. And I had an athlete who lived in Utah at the time. He'd come home from one of those California early season stage races Mm -hmm. and like slipped getting into or out of his hot tub and hit his head and passed away. Um, And I was in the equipment room the next morning and his brother called me and uh, told me what happened. And I just, I, man, I remember sitting on a bike box for about an hour. Um, and then I just called my boss and I said, Hey man, I'm going home. Um, and I 
jumped, went home and I jumped on my bike and I rode all the way up to the Overlook on Rampart Range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember sitting up there for who knows how long. And it was March, so it was like cold and I didn't even care. Um, I remember like almost every pedal stroke of the way up and nothing from the way down. Just trying to like squeeze all the pain out on the way up. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that was, that was easily the worst day I've had as a coach on the bike. So Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Sorry uh, to, sorry to bring it down after you get no, open with my no. jokes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like I, as a coach, I feel like it's important to like have that level of vulnerability. Yeah. Both for my athletes and myself. Otherwise we can't, we can't make improvements. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And those stories do highlight how brief life is and yeah. how important it is to make the most of the time that we've got. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You never know. Or no. You know, there's something really therapeutic about that rampart climb as well. Mm-hmm. Just, it's a special place. Yeah, it really is. Um, mm. I've had, a, a, like, a lot of good days up there and, like, taking out a lot of pain on that mm. one, too. Yeah. And you can, you can suffer a lot on that climb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's yeah. pretty relentless. It is. So, uh, and it's nice and long, too. Mm-hmm. Well, we are... Super, super grateful to have you here with us and for everything that you bring to our community and to the Paralympic team and everybody who interacts with you. I mean, you are, you're just, you're a joy to have around <laughs> and super fun to ride with. Too. Ah, thank you. you. Like, it's always fun to ride with you and I'd still got to ride with Jason. Yeah, but, we're going to make um, it happen. Um, but I'm honored to, to be on you guys' show. It was, it was an absolute pleasure and an honor. A lot of fun this morning. Thanks so and, much. Yeah. Before we close out entirely, um, I, I want to just touch on the fact that you're, you're coaching now from mind, right? Endurance. Yes. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? Um, or? a friend of mine, I, I actually met him on, I was on a recruiting trip for Paralympic cycling and he was at a veterans kind of triathlon camp that, that I was helping out with. And he's another army veteran. And he called me a couple years after that and said, Hey, I'm doing this thing. I'd love it if you want to help out. We went back and forth for a while. I thought about it. And eventually in late 2018, I ended up joining MindRight and uh, we have a lot of fun together. You know, I'm trying to use what I've learned over the years to educate coaches who have less experience that are, that are working with MindRight. And, and he also just gives me the freedom to do whatever else I want to do, like yeah. in coaching world. So if I want to, you know, help out with anything, it's like, yeah, do it, go ahead. And it really allows me to like have this be my, my full-time job, which is great. And for those interested, I think it's mindrightendurance.com. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have a link in the show notes as always. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. I look forward to the next, next ride with you. Yeah. It'd be a lot of fun. We're going to go do that that little descent we did in, in you or not in you, but in Palmer after the time trial. Again, Cause I, I need to, I need to hit it again and feel good yeah, about it. That was a great cool down. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, hey, here's a pile of rocks. Let, let's climb to the top of it <laughs> after time trialing for an hour and then drop down this gnarly pile uh, of rocks and loose sand. The impulse decision. Like, Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. I haven't done that. In, I don't know how long. 
<laughs> What's a line? Uh, uh, eh, there's one. Oh, there's several. <laughs> Choose your own adventure book. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>